right, church, how we doing? Doing good? You guys excited about the baptism? I mean, it's not going to be epic. Hope you're going to be there. Uh, you know, save some chicken for me. I'll be there. And we'll, we'll commence to dunking about 145. So uh, grab your Bibles if you got them. I hope you do. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. And so we've been in this long study called Give Love a Try. It's just verse by verse through 1 John. And the whole point of 1 John is this word assurance. That the assurance of your salvation is not rooted in what you do for God, but what He has done for you. The assurance of your salvation is found in the finished work at the cross by Jesus, not in how you work for Him. Last weekend, I was hosting this uh, Bible study retreat kind of environment, and we're in that environment, and this friend of mine named Chuck stands up and says that he's really loved the First John series. He says, because what he's figured out is that, uh, let's see, I wrote it down. He said it, somewhere I wrote it down. Here it goes. He says, I thought my good deeds would earn me a better standing with God, but now I've learned in Christ it's my standing with God that leads me to good deeds. And when he said that, I wanted to jump up and down and, and you know, clap and cheer and do a cartwheel and spirit fingers, right? Because I was like, yes, that is it. That is First John. It's not that our good deeds earn us a better standing with God, but it's in Christ our right standing with God leads us to act like it. That's what this whole thing is about. So First John chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 18. It says, little children, that's us, little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This was the last verse of last week. And the reason I wanted to pick it up is because 19 refers to it. He goes, by this. By what? By the fact that we love, not just in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And so last week was our Compassion Weekend, and there's a number of things that I'm really excited about. One, quite honestly, we're growing up as a church, we're about to turn three, we're being potty trained, you know, so we're doing really well. And a lot of times, Compassion Weekends are like low attendance Sundays for us, and not anymore, okay? Our attendance was normal. That's very exciting. But what's even more exciting than that is that you, we, we love, not just in word or talk, but in deed and truth that we sponsored another 480 kids on top of the 900 that we sponsored at Christmas. Way to go, way to go, way to go. And just so you know, the experts at Compassion told me it was a terrible idea to do a Compassion Weekend right now since we just done one at Christmas. And I was like, well, Jimmy Cracks Corn, I don't care. Send us the packets. Our people are freaks, okay? And you are, so way to go. And in addition to the 480 that you sponsored, by the way, if you want to sponsor one, you can pick one up in the lobby. Not the actual child, but the packet, and you can write them letters and stuff, Okay. And so, but also, in addition to that, 500 letters went out where you wrote out your testimony that the gospel message literally is going to the ends of the earth over the next few weeks. And I'm telling you that, that 100 years from now, there will be some of your kids, your compassion kids, around the throne from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And part of the reason that God used to bring them to that place in heaven will be the letters that you wrote. And not only that is that when one of these compassion kids gets a letter from you, it is like a treasured possession. They will read that letter to every little kid in their village, I promise. And there will be people in heaven, and God will use the gospel through you and your story to lead people there. And so, this is like, I'm so proud of you, Church of 1122. Give God a hand and way to go, church. So good. So good. All right, now the gut punch. All right, verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So when First John, and in the first century, when the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about the heart the way we talk about the heart. 
It's not talking about that four-chambered muscle that gets the blood everywhere to oxygenate your... Not, it's not that. It's talking about kind of, kind of like your gut, kind of that core of decision-making where feelings are, where that intuition is. And we live in a culture that says, follow your heart. I mean, I can promise you, every single one of us has come to some point in our lives where we've gone to a trusted friend, somebody that, that may even be a Christian, and you present some details to them, this paradox in which you find yourself, and you're like, I just don't know what to do. Should I go A or should I go B? And typically, your friend that really loves you, and they're very well-meaning, they'll lean in, they'll kind of lower their voice and do that whisper thing, so you know it's going to be spiritual. And they say, I just think you should follow your heart. And you go, why would you say that? Like, I think it's in the Bible. Go, yeah, where is it? Where is it in the Bible? Well, it sounds like it should be in there. Maybe like second hesitations or third opinions or somewhere in here it sounds like it ought to be in there. Just follow your heart. Well, the Bible does say that the heart is very, very important. In Proverbs 4, 23, the Bible says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The NIV says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That what comes out of you is a result of what's in you. And so take care of your heart. It's very, very important. And so again, you might think, well, then should we follow our heart? Well, here's the problem with following your heart. Here's what Jeremiah 17.9 says. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, look at your neighbor and say, you're sick. Some of you did it a little too much. You're like, I told you you were sick. All right, relax. It's just true. It's just true. And I know some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you to tell me that my heart is sick? I'm not telling you. Jeremiah did, okay? Here's the deal. Nobody's lied to you more than you. Nobody has mistreated you more than you. If anybody else in this world treats you as bad as you treat you, don't be their friend. You understand that? You were a horrible friend to yourself. How many times has your heart gotten you into an immense amount of trouble? Am I lying? How many of you have gotten into a bad financial situation because of your heart? I mean, instead of listening to your dad, you listen to your heart, and now you're in trouble. It's just true, isn't it? You got all this evidence. You got all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. You got people that love you giving you wise advice, but your heart tells you to lease it. And so now you're driving around in your heart, and you can't afford it, and you're like, dang it, heart. It's just true. Heart. This is one I hear over and over and over and over and over and over. Somebody, chooses a girl, comes to me and is like, Pastor, I think I've met the one, one, one. I'm like, oh, praise God. Tell me about it. What's going on? Well, I love him. That's great. What do you love about him? We've got a song. Oh, no. <laughs> right? Does he have a job? No, he doesn't have a job. But we've got a song. And I go, run away. Run away. You want to marry a man and make babies. You do not want to marry a baby and try to make him a man, okay? How many of you have gotten into horrible places because you listen to your heart? This is what it means when he says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who, who can understand it? You see, Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, the, uh, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say that his disciples are defiled because they don't wash their hands right and because of what they're eating. And so Jesus essentially says, no, no, no. What defiles you is not what goes in, okay? And here's what he says. He says, he says this is the truth. When a man eats, it goes into his stomach and then is expelled. And then everybody there is like, amen. We can all agree with that, right? No argument there. And he goes, so what comes out of that end of you does not defile you, but it's what comes out of your mouth. And what comes out of your mouth is an overflow of the heart. And then here's what Jesus says about your heart. I mean, sweet, 
peaceful Jesus petting the sheep, playing kumbaya with the kids. Here's what he says about your heart. It's Matthew 15, 19. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So, word of advice, do not follow your heart. Do not follow your heart. This is why I tell you that I don't care about your feelings. Now, I mean it in love. It's not that I don't care that you have feelings. I have a feeling, okay? And, and I know you have feelings. I'd love for you to be happy. But I don't want you to think that your feelings are the Lord of your life. We want Jesus to be the Lord of your life and not what you feel like that day. And it's why here at 1122, we don't ever go outside in kind of sermons. It's always inside out. You know why? Because it's, it's from the heart that everything happens. It's from the heart. It's why God doesn't love some future version of you. It's not why I'm trying to tell you to try to do better. Quit sinning so much. No. It's that we got to, the, the heart of the problem is a problem of our own heart. And unless we, unless we do something from the inside out, then it's just an exercise in futility. See, I live off of Beach Boulevard, a couple miles from here. Love my neighborhood. Moved there a couple years ago. Love it like crazy. Okay, some of my neighbors now come to church here, all right? So beware if you live on my street. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And so, but when you pull into my neighborhood, if these big, beautiful gates, looks like you're going into Biltmore. It's so nice, all right? And so a few months ago, about six months ago or so, there was these, um, somebody was breaking into the cars in the neighborhood in the middle of the night. And so, you know what happens anytime something happens like that in a neighborhood? First of all, everybody felt so safe, they were just leaving their car doors unlocked, and, you know, because we got these gates. What could possibly go wrong? And, and somebody's going around and popping all the doors until they find one unlocked, and then they take whatever they want. And then at one point, they took somebody's whole car, okay? And so, here's what happens. Dun, 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 to the rescue, the HOA. And so, the HOA president comes up with a plan. Here's the plan. Ready? By the way, if you're the HOA president in your, in your neighborhood, we should talk, all right? Bless your ministry. But here's what ours came up with. Ours, like, we need better gates. That's what they did. So they got this company. The company from here, somebody here runs it. They got the company, and they're out there counting cars and how long the doors stay open and what the codes are and what it requires. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. It took me zero seconds to figure it out. I mean, I don't know, but I know, you know, that the person stealing from the cars lives in our neighborhood. So I don't care what you do to the gates. You can put armed guards and put pit bulls and a retinal scanner, but until you catch the crook that lives down the street from me, it doesn't matter what you do to the inside if the crook lives on the... If it doesn't matter what you do to the outside if the crook lives on the inside. Listen, that's why we don't do a lot of, hey, here's four holy hops to be a better version of you. No, no way. And most of the time, when I went to church when I was a kid, that was the message that I, that I heard. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. And, and, and they would say, okay, so here's how you beef up the gate in your life. You got to quit looking at this. You got to start looking at that. You got to quit drinking this. Don't drink that. Drink this. Pray this way. Oh, not that way. Settle down. All right. Raise a hand. Not two hands. All right. Hold, all this kind of outward end stuff. And honestly, some people are really good at beefing up the gates. I was not one of them. Pastor Ryan Stone was so good at beefing up the gates when he was growing up. From the outside, it looks like he has no sin. That's how, his, he's the son of a Southern Baptist pastor. And when he was a kid, he couldn't drink Bark's root beer because it came in a beer-looking bottle and that might call, uh, cause others to stumble, okay? Or when he would go out to a restaurant that had fountain drinks, his parents would not let him mix Coke and Cherry Coke because that's a mixed drink. That's true. That's true. Pray for him. He has so many issues now, okay, so... <laughs> but the heart of the problem is a problem 
of the heart. It's not inside out. I mean, it's not outside in. It is inside out. And here's the deal about our fleshly hearts. Here's the deal about our natural hearts. That our hearts are bent on self-survival. It is survival of the fittest. And your heart, apart from Christ, wants to protect the throne room of your life to make sure that you are always the king of your own universe. It is. I mean, it is like a pit bull in anything that challenges your own kingdom. I'm telling you, your heart will deceive you and lie to you to make sure that you are sitting on the throne of your own heart. That's why Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And some of you are like, I don't have evil thoughts. That's bullshit. Yes, you do. Let me tell you of an evil thought every one of you have had. Remember the last time when your boss called you up or you got the email and it was about a guy at work that you don't really like that much and you got bad news about him? Not real bad, but just kind of bad. And in your heart, you went, yes. You even prayed, dear sovereign God, I just thank you for crushing Ted's career in Jesus' name. Amen. What is wrong with you people? I'm telling you, it's in there, isn't it? Me too? You don't believe me? Um, I'll tell you. One of the, the longest-running, family-friendly television shows on is rooted in the concept that we have evil thoughts in our heart. It's called America's Funniest Home Videos. Come on, kids. Gather around. Let's enjoy the pain of others. Oh, look. That guy got hit in the knee. And that guy got hit in the knee. And that guy got hit in the knee. Ha, 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 ha. Let's watch it again. That is what we do. Somehow, people's pain brings us great delight. What is that? That is this competition thing where we think, I am going to be on the top of the heap. And it is. I'm telling you. Over and over. And so he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And some of you are like, okay, you got me. Number two, murder. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've never murdered anybody. Yeah, except for Jesus said, you've heard it say, thou shalt not kill. Or thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you've ever hated your brother where? In your heart, then you've already murdered him. Man, I've murdered a bunch of you just getting out of the parking lot here sometimes. Do you understand that? You ever notice that? I could be driving on JTB, and I'm in the left lane, and I'm in a hurry, and you're not in a hurry, and I hate you. I mean, what is your problem? But here's what's crazy, too. But if I'm not in a hurry, and you're behind me, and you're in a hurry, I'm like, what is your problem? Just slow down and relax and enjoy the ride. <laughs> so unless you're on my agenda, I hate you. That's kind of how it goes. In my heart. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, now that ought to, that, that'll, right? Jesus' brother. James, at one point, puts his faith in Jesus? Look, you want an apologetic for the reality of the gospel? How about this? That Jesus' brother trusted him as Lord. I've got a brother. And if Russ would have come to me and said, Behold, I am the Lamb of God. <laughs> I don't think so, Scooter. All right? I don't think that's how this works. But James did. James is like, Jesus, you're right. All right, so James says this in James 4.1. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, if I were to ask this whole room, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Just imagine real quick. Now, look at me. Do not look to the left or to the right right now. Imagine the last fight you were in. Because I know some of you are like, it was on the way here. Okay. If I gave you the mic and said, come describe the last fight you were in, here's how every single one of us would start it. All right? It was my boss, my kids, my wife, my husband, somebody else. This is what they did to me. Now, here's the thing. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your passions that are a war within you? You know what that means? You know what the common denominator in every fight you've ever been in is? You. You. And then he goes on to say it. Okay, you've been in all your own fights. You want something, and you don't get it, so you murder. 
Did you know that's what it boils down to? Here's why you're angry at somebody right now. Here's why you're angry at somebody at work. Here's why you're angry with your mom and dad or with your children or with your boss or whatever. It's because you wanted something and you don't get it. And your heart deceives you and your heart begins to tell you who do they think they are. Do, know, do they know who they are dealing with? They are dealing with me and I am me. How dare you? That's what happens in your heart. And so out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, and oh boy, here we go, and adultery. You guys, re you guys realize adultery starts in the heart, not the pants? Every single time. Adultery starts in the heart, not in the pants. Here's why. Your heart begins to lie to you, and you start to believe it. You start to think, well, all right, I know he's not my husband, but we're just friends. We're just friends. And he validates me, and he affirms me, and he kind of pursues me, but it's innocent. We're just talking. We're just Facebook. It's just, we're just tweeting, whatever it is. But it's not that big a deal, all right? Now, I know I get this little, like, when I'm around him that I don't get around him, you know, because I see him in his worst. I only see him in his best, but there's something here. And then here's where your heart lies to you. Your heart says, hey, listen, no, you're not on a path. This isn't a pathway. This is an event. So just keep texting, keep, keep talking, keep being friends. No big deal. And then here's, and then this is the ringer. The heart says, no, 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 no. You've got this. You've got this. This could never be a pathway with a destination. And in that moment, your heart lies to you. And you begin to believe that you're more godly than David, that you're wiser than Solomon, that you're stronger than Samson. Guess what all three of those brothers had in common? Adultery. And it starts, not in the pants, it starts in the heart. Starts in the heart. Or your heart will begin to lie to you and say, you know what, you deserve this. You deserve better. I mean, she's cut you off for so long. But the girl at work, man, she laughs at your jokes. She believes you're the man. She, you, you know, you used to start leaning away from her and towards this because you know who you are. You are the king of your own universe. And you deserve this. You deserve this. Or your heart, <laughs> your heart begins to lie to you so bad that you could look at your kids and look at your family and look at all of that and say, Whatever. Whatever. Where do you think that comes from? Is it logical? Absolutely not. It's because we have sick and deceitful hearts. That has nothing to do with about, about physical pleasure. It has everything to do with that lying, cheating thing that's beating in here, our very heart. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. The word there in Greek is porneo. It's a jump drawer for anything outside of God's will in regards to sex. That your heart will begin to tell you, who does God think he is trying to tell you how to live your love life? You know better than God. I mean, you're really going to believe this old ancient manuscript, all right? Don't you remember what your college freshman taught you? Now, she's not teaching college English anymore, but that's all right. Don't you believe what she taught you, that this is just some old book? How does the creator of the universe, who is he to try to tell you how to live your love life? You should do what you want with who you want when you want. And your heart will begin to tell you that. Your heart will actually begin to convince you that, that your sexual appetite is like any other appetite. Hey, you get hungry, you should feed it, right? Well, hey, it's just another hunger, you should feed it. Hey, but what about at the expense of the soul of some girl that's trapped in some kind of literally slavery around the world? That doesn't matter. What if, what if it crushes the future potential of any kind of intimacy for that individual? It doesn't matter because I'm king of my own universe. So I'll click, 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 whatever. Let somebody else deal with that. You see, that has very little to do with what people look like. It has everything to do with a, a sick heart that nobody can understand. So out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, theft. Look, nobody in Jacksonville steals because they need anything. Humble yourself and ask. We've got a, a bunch of organizations that we support that will give you food, clothes, shelter, whatever you need. Just got to ask. 
Here's the problem, though. Here's what your heart begins to tell you when you steal stuff. When we steal stuff, it says this. Hey, listen, God got it wrong. God got it wrong. Just because you don't own it doesn't mean it doesn't belong to you. When God was giving out stuff, he gave, some, he gave your stuff to somebody else. So now you play God and you go get what's yours. That's what your heart tells you. Why? Because it wants you to stay the king of your own universe. So evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. This happens all the time. Your boss comes to you. Hey, Johnson, you got the report filled out? You know you don't. And what do you do? False witness. The Greek word is CYA. That's what it is. You, I got to say stuff because whatever, I mean, if I have to lie, whatever. But I cannot let anybody else think less of me. It's false witness. And your heart says, just go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say it. You, you can deal with the consequences later, but just go ahead and say it. Say whatever it takes to keep you king of the hill. And the last one is slander. Because our heart convinces us that somehow I'm going to be elevated at others' expense. And we do it. And here's what's crazy. Even though we've never seen it work in anybody else's case, we believe somehow it's going to work for us. None of us have ever been standing around the water cooler and somebody you're working with is tearing down somebody else that you work with and, that you, and you thought more of that person. Has it ever worked for you? No. Because you think, uh-oh, I think as soon as I leave the, the circle, I may become the target. And yet, in one second, what do we do? We can try to tear others down because we think, hey, it's all a popularity contest anyway. And so if I can beat everybody else down, then maybe I will look elevated. Where does that come from? It comes from one place. It comes from our heart. Listen, regardless of what you believe, we can all agree on this. Something's wrong. Is it not? It's why the, it's why the self-help uh, section of the bookstore is the largest because all of us agree something went wrong. And I'm telling you, the heart of the problem is that we have a heart problem. And then thank God for the commas in the Bible. Because it says, whenever our hearts condemn us. Now, our heart doesn't tell us we're condemned. It's our heart that condemns us, comma. But God is greater than our heart. But God is greater than our heart. That's why I don't want us to be ruled by our feelings. That even while those things are true in our life, and we have murderous thoughts and evil thoughts and lustful thoughts and, and all those kind of crooked and depraved hearts, the good news is that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that even while we were yet still sinners with crooked and depraved hearts, God loved us. He sent his son for us. He died on the cross for us to change everything. And no matter how big your sin is, it pales in comparison to the bigness and the vastness of his grace demonstrated at the cross. So what God is not trying to do, he's not trying to fix your heart. He's not. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So here's the deal. God's not trying to get in your heart and try to fix it up a little bit. None of us are fixer-uppers. It's all a bulldoze and start-over job. Every single one of us. And listen, and that's good news because you can just relax. That what God wants to do is he sent Jesus to the cross. And God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we would be made his righteousness. Or in Ezekiel language, he's going to re reach in and take that heart of stone that has an inability to love God and an inability to love one another and an inability to be obedient. And he's going to take it and he's going to rip it out. We're talking about heart transplant here. And then he's going to take the, the, the heartbeat of his own son Jesus and implant that in there. And then with a brand new heart, Everything changes, and you don't have to do the stuff you used to do because you're not the person you used to be. The old you's dead, and the new you is in Christ. New heart, verse 21. With that in mind, beloved. Now, this is the second time we've seen this word beloved. When you see the word beloved, I don't want you to see it as a title. I want you to see it as a command. 
Separate the word into two words and be loved. The God, the maker of the universe just wants to love you. He wants to lavish his love upon you. So this is a command for us to just be loved. What do I got to do, God, to get in? Be loved. That's what you do. You surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ and you just receive the love that he wants to lavish upon you with a brand new heart in Christ. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. To which you might say, well, pastor, how do we do that? You just said we have wicked hearts. Here's how you do it. You surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. He rips out the wicked heart. He puts a brand new heart in there, which is Jesus' heart. And that's how, with his heart, you can stand before him with no condemnation. That's why one of the verses that I quote here over and over and over is Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how can you say that? Because I've done some things that should be condemned, like last night. I know. But when Christ died on the cross, he paid for it all. Therefore, we stand before him, not just forgiven, but adopted as righteous. He sees you as perfect. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's a little Bible study tip. Whenever you're studying the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to see what the therefore is there for. Got it? So if you go to Romans 8.1, if you back up, you get to Romans 7. I went to seminary for that, okay? So I want you to see the context in which Paul says that there is no condemnation. So in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, Paul, an apostle, says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that sound like anybody's walk? That's mine. And then liars. Nobody raised their hand. Wait, just make me feel naked up here all by myself. I was like, no, I'm good. I've just been walking closely with Jesus. Okay. Well, some of us struggle. I mean, is that not going on in you? Like, you want to follow him, you want to obey him, you want to just wake up and worship him, and yet, the things that you promised you'd never ever do again, they're just right there everywhere you go. Look, these are Bible verses. And can we just agree that Paul's a Christian? Can you give me that? Because here's what I think. By the, if you're writing the Bible, you're a Christian, okay? And Paul's not even just like a casual Christian. He's all in. He's the guy that said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you know where he said that? In prison. They, they came to him and said, Paul, you've got to quit with this Jesus and resurrection stuff. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. He's like, to die is gain. I'll be face to face with Jesus. I can't wait to meet him face to face. I want to see him again. Okay? And they're like, well, never mind. We're going to leave you in prison. All right, well, give me a hymnal because I'm going to sing praises and lead your jailers to Christ. Yeah, what do you do with that guy? He's all in. I know you think you're a Christian, but compared to Paul, you're JV B-team water boy. He wrote the Bible. You don't even have yours out. That's what I'm saying. He's in. And yet, with that, with that, he, he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And here's his conclusion. Wretched man am I. And the Oprah in us all wants to swing in and go, no, Paul, you're good enough and you're smart enough and don't go on at people like you. 
and you're the greatest church planner of all time. And if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't know Jesus because you took the gospel to the Gentiles. So, Paul, you're a good dude. And Paul goes, yeah, except for when I look at myself, man, I'm telling you, I am a wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The conclusion is there, not me. I have to find a righteousness outside of me because I cannot do it on my own. Because I've tried. I've broken every promise. I've broken every resolution. I've tried and tried and tried, and I can't pull it off. Who will deliver me? That's why, listen, try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. In the kingdom of God, you're shoeless. You don't even have straps to grab onto. That's what he means. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And just when it looks like the worst thing you've ever heard. Because some of you right now are like, that's why I can't quit coming to church. Because I get to show up and hear about how awful I am. It's worse than you think. It really is. It is worse than you think. But here's the good news. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news, that your activity no longer has to define you. Your temptations no longer define you. Your addictions, your habits, your orientation, your past, your present, your future, none of those things get to define you because your heart will condemn you, but in Christ you don't have your old heart anymore. That's not you anymore, but Jesus Christ gets to define you. And in Christ, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's good news. Nothing like sputtering applause to good news like that. It's all right. I'll teach you one day. Here we go. Verse 22. So with that in mind, with that in mind, all right, prosperity people, hold on. Here it comes. Your favorite verse in the Bible. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So some of you are like, oh, finally the good part, all right? So are you saying that whatever you ask from God, he'll give it to you? Yes, amen, 100% every time. In context of what he's talking about here, okay? That every single person with the heart of Jesus that prays with Jesus' heart, God always answers that prayer. And if you want to know how Jesus prayed, just back up a few pages and see what he prays. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing something he doesn't necessarily want to face. The wrath of God, and here's what he prays. He's sweating blood. He feels like he's going to die, and he prays this. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Now, here, I've had a lot of people say, hey, man, how in the world can you say Jesus is the only way to God? Well, I'm, I'm saying, listen, you know what? Jesus was asking, hopefully, God, is there another way? Because if there be any other way, if Oprah's right, and it's just one yellow brick road, and we all skip our own way up to the top, then can we go with that? I mean, if I could just align my chakra or keep coming back as a grasshopper until I finally make it in or obey the Ten Commandments or give enough money or whatever the deal is, can we do that deal and leave me out of the multiple choice here? And then here's what he prays. Not my will, thy will be done. That's the prayer God answers every single time. And when you have the heart of Jesus and you are praying, not my will, thy will be done, he answers it at yes every single time. Now, some of you are like, does that mean we shouldn't pray? You should pray. You should pray a lot because he, 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 you have a good dad. And what's, what matters to you matters to him because you matter to him. And you have a good dad. And so in Luke 11, chapter, uh, verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. And he goes, all right, all right, all right. When you pray, pray like this. And he did not say memorize it and repeat it on Sundays for the rest of your life. He, he, was, he was giving us a, a model by which we would pray called the Lord's Prayer. And he started it off this way, our Father. Like it was relational. At that point, the disciples' head exploded and they didn't know what, not literally, but they were like, well, we're out. Sovereign Lord is the only way we know to start. And Jesus is saying, our Father. 
And so at the end of the Lord's Prayer, they don't know what he's talking about. So he has to do a parable. And he goes, okay, okay. Prayer is like this. It's found in Luke 11. He goes, prayer is like this. It's like a guy, and he had some visitors come in the middle of the night. And what you've got to know is in the first century, hospitality was everything. If somebody showed up to your house and, and, and you didn't have, like, bread and wine to give them, then, then you would just be ostracized in your community. So he says, prayer's like this. It's like a man has a friend come from out of town, shows up at his house late at night unexpected, and he didn't have anything to give him, no bread, no wine. So he goes to another guy's house, and when he goes to this guy's house, that guy's asleep in his living room. And the way they would sleep in the first century is the whole family would kind of pile in together on a mat, okay? And so I told JP that once, and so now when he tries to get, some, get in our bed, he's like, it's like Jesus. All right, whatever. So... So the friend with the guest comes to the guy's house, his neighbor, and he's asleep. He starts knocking. Hey, man, can you give me some bread? Give me some wine so I can feed my neighbor, my friend that, that came to visit me. And the guy asleep in the house goes, nah, man, you call Papa John's or something because I got to get up and get my robe on and my shoes and wake up my whole family. I'm not going to do it. And then the Bible says, but because of his persistence, the man got up and got him what he asked. And so when you pray, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. You see, here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy, is that God says, come on, ask me again, ask me again. Now, my will is going to be done, but ask me again, which is fundamentally different, because in my house, if I say, ask me again, that is not good at all, at all. And God says, I'm a good dad, I want to lavish my love upon you, now ask me again. And here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray with the heart of Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. Now ask me again. Some of you guys are praying for some very legit stuff. Like, you want a baby. And so far, God said no. And he goes, come on, ask me again. Does that mean you're going to give it to me if I ask the magic number of times? That's not the point. It's my will be done, not yours, but ask me again. Some of you want to get married? Ask me again. Some of you need some interview you go to to end up in a job. And he goes, I love you. It's my will be done. But ask it. Come on, keep on asking. Keep on asking. Keep on asking. Why? Because he's searching for not a bunch of robots that just do what he says, but a relationship with a good dad. That's what this means. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. So this is it. He's going to sum it all up. You want to know what God's commandment is for you? There's 600 and some commandments in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, there's just one. And it's like a 1A and 1B. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded. See, a lawyer came up to Jesus one time and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says it just boils down. It's this simple. Love God, love people. Now, John helps us understand that the way you love God is that you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You believe in. The way we say it around here is you surrender your life to the lordship of Christ. Because there's a difference between believing in and believing that. I've shared this with you before. I believe that there is a football team in Gainesville. I believe they have a quarterback and an offensive line and a defense and an offense and coaches and training facilities. I believe that that all exists. But I do not believe in said team. I do not root for them. I will not give my, you know, whatever. Nothing will I put towards them. I acknowledge their existence. So, many people in the South, that's how you treat the Lord. You believe that he's there. You believe that he got the whole thing going. You even believe that Jesus came and died on the cross to save sinners. But you don't believe in him. The Greek word is pastuo. You don't trust in him. You don't lean your life against him. Because you're still the Lord of your own life. And so he says this. Believe in the name of his son Jesus and love one another. Or the way Jesus said it is love God and love people. Maybe you've heard the rumor, but I coach baseball. Have you heard about that lately? <laughs> it's been a week. I need to tell you another baseball story. All right, so we're in All-Stars. 
And uh, I'm telling you, the Lord teaches me something through this. So we're, we have nine-year-old all-star team. We won yesterday. It was awesome. JP wrote one to the fence, and he was the closing pitcher. Got to save. It was great. All right? And many of your kids play with us now, too. Good job. So here's the thing about nine-year-old all-star. They know how to play baseball because they're all-star. They had to try out, and we selected them, and we're trying to win. This is not about fun, except there's nothing more fun than winning. So they're all on our team, okay? And so... <clears throat> And, and, and here's what happens in little league baseball on every field all over the country every Saturday, all right? They're nine years old, and when some kid is up to bat, and he hits the ball, and it goes to some little nine-year-old, the nine-year-old comes over, and he scoops up the ball, and in that moment, every parent with wretched, black-hearted hearts, and, and they're just trying to live out their glory days through their nine-year-old, that could be me, but, but that's what they're doing. And everybody, not just the parents, but the grandparents and the brothers and the sisters and coaches from both teams, and every adult within a mile of the field begin to yell out all kind of baseball instructions. And there is a nine-year-old with the boy with the ball, and he knows what to do with the ball, but out comes, run, back, throw the ball, bend your back, bend your wrist, follow through, squish the bug, back, back, watch this one, run, go, why are you holding the ball, throw it, throw it, come back, do this, second base, first base, cut, cut, just all this stuff. And this nine-year-old is just standing there, and you're like, why are you holding the ball? Because you're a grown man just screaming at me. <laughs> is it not true? So I went back to a very trusted resource, this great theological work from the 20th century called Bull Durham, and here's what it said. A good friend of mine used to say, baseball is a very simple game. You throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes it rains. Think about that for a while. That's true, is it not? I mean, in baseball, you hit and run, you throw and catch. That's it. That's it. You hit and run, you throw and catch, and that is it. But man, sometimes in the middle of the game, with all of those voices and these little nine-year-olds, they really do know what to do, but they've been taught to respect all these people that are screaming at them with veins popping out of their eyelids, you know? And they can kind of freeze. And what I began to think about a couple Saturdays ago, that might be your experience at church. That sometimes, if you're not careful, it's why we just have one message here over and over and over and over, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about what you can do for him. It's what he has done for you on the cross. And sometimes when you show up to church, each individual thing that you hear is good in and of itself, but don't miss the whole point. Because some of you show up and you're here, you've got to go on a mission trip in three years, and you've got to get in a group, and you've got to, go to, uh, you've got to be on our serve staff, and, and you've got to stand up and sit down and raise one hand, now raise two hands, now come to the altar, now get out the altar, and now uh, put something in the, in the offering plate, and you've got to go to the beach, and you've got to baptize, not like this, but like this, and you hear all this stuff, and then I just want to cut through all the clutter. Jesus cuts through all the clutter and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's all fine, that's all fine, but it's like this, love God, love people. Ready? Break. That's it. That's it. That's it. And so don't confuse it, don't confuse it. So he goes on to say, whoever keeps his command abides in God. Abides, I mean, stay close, it's a relational term. That's why this is a movement for all people, to discover and deepen a relationship, your very own relationship with Jesus, so that you can abide, you can stay close, you can know him as your heavenly father, not just sovereign God. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know, we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. So, not only does God, for anybody that surrenders their life to the Lordship of Christ, not only does He reach in and take that heart of stone and rip it out and put in a heart that beats for Him and for one another, but there's a deposit in that heart, the Holy Spirit, the very power of God is imputed into your heart to give you everything you need to do everything He's called, commanded, equipped, and appointed you to do. And so here's the point. 
The point is, is that you and I, that you and I don't need a better heart. That we need a new heart. We need his heart, a heart that loves God and loves one another. So nobody here needs to be asking Jesus to come in in their heart and try to help them. Ah, wrong answer. He wants to rip out that heart and give us a new heart. His heart that is set to beat towards him and to love one another with the deposit of the Holy Spirit in there so that you can actually do it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says it this way. And he is speaking on behalf of God and he says this. He says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your talents and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I want all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit. All of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange. I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. So what my friend Chuck said was absolutely right. That my good deeds do not earn me a better standing with God, but my right standing with God in Christ fuels me to do good deeds. So some of you, some of you, maybe for the very first time, go, oh, yeah, he, you're right. I got a wicked heart. My heart's led me in all kind of places that I, I, and I was just trying to do what I thought was right and follow my heart, and that's not working. Did you know, in this moment, God demonstrated his love for you. He gives you this opportunity, not because you deserve it, but because he is love. And that you can love him because he first loved you. And it simply boils down to this. The reason you exist is to love God and love people. That's it. That's it. And right now, this could be the very moment where God rips out that heart of stone and he replaces it with the heart of his son, Jesus. And you go from wretched, black-hearted sinner to righteous saint and adopted son or daughter of God. And that's a good deal. And here's how you do it. It's not by anything that you've done. It's by what he's done. You just admit it. Okay, God, I admit it. I've been the king of my own universe. And that you believe in Jesus. And here's what this means, to believe in, not just believe that. That when he died on the cross, it counted for you. See, some of you think you've been too bad. No, God's bigger than your badness every time. Some of you think you've been good enough. No, God, God's holiness makes you look pretty wretched. But when he died on the cross, it counted for you. When he said, it is finished, he was talking about you individually. That your sin payment is done. He paid it. So then you just confess. All right, Jesus, you're Lord. I'm not Lord anymore. The terminology we use here is that you surrender. Some of you know that move very well, okay? I, you got me. I surrender. That's what you do to Jesus. And then he, he becomes Lord of your life. Gives you a new heart. And then you give, begin a new journey because you are a new you with a new heart. Would you please bow your head? Close your eyes. If you were a Christian, would you just remind yourself of the good news of the gospel? And if today is the day that you are ready to have a new heart, to have your sins forgiven, to be justified in front of God, to be adopted into his family with a brand new start, bought and paid for and adopted, and today is the day that you're ready to admit that you're a sinner, to believe in Jesus, confess him as Lord, would you just tell him, Tell him in your own words, however you want to tell him. And if that's you, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ today, would you raise your hand? Would you say, God, here I am. God, I need a new heart. I want a new heart. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you that in this very moment there is salvation. In this very moment, in this place, 
God, in a facility that just was not intended for this by man, but God, that you knew when you built this place that you'd be saving people in this place. That right now, God, hearts of stone are being ripped out. Sins are being forgiven. Pasts are being washed away. Identities are being changed from activity to being rooted in you. God, I thank you and I praise you that we can love you and we can love one another because you first loved us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand to your feet? We're going to respond. <clears throat> and we're going to respond by singing this song. I don't know if we have greatest hits, but this is one of our greatest hits, okay? You'll see when we get to it. And, that, and, and, it, and it verbalizes what we've been trying to preach, that our very lives could be a love song to God out of response to the fact that He loved us. So we're going to respond by singing like crazy. And then some of you know that there's some things that, that you've been convicted of, not condemned, but you need to come down to the altar and just lay them at the feet of Christ. And if you're a regular here, we bring our tithes and offerings, our first and best to God, because He first loved us by giving us His best in Jesus. And so let us respond however you need to.